0: and welcome to Bookends, the monthly Meet the Author podcast from the team approach featuring books for managers, supervisors, and HRD practitioners. I'm Susan Stam, and I'm pleased to welcome Vernon Williams to our show today, the author of Why Employees Fail to Meet uh, Performance Expectations and How to Fix the Problem. To order a copy of this book today, you can visit www.vernonwilliams.net where you'll find rich resources, articles, Assessments and much more Vernon has over 20 years of experience as a manager working in a Fortune 500 company and over 10 years experience as a consultant to frontline supervisors. Through these experience, he's discovered the 20 most common reasons that employees fail to meet performance expectations. At the core of his beliefs, Vernon feels that all employees have unlimited potential for achievement. This philosophy is an underlining premise that his work and his book are based upon. Vernon has conducted seminars and has successfully trained thousands of supervisors on how to motivate their employees to peak performance using the principles from this book. His client list includes Bell Atlantic Corporation, the Social Security Administration, and the U.S. Capitol Police. He has served on the board of the Board of Performance Institute, a bipartisan think tank that helps government agencies improve performance, and has a master's degree in applied behavioral science from John Hopkins University. Welcome to Bookends, Vernon Williams. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's, uh, it, it is for me as well. I've uh, truly enjoyed your, your book, Vernon, and looking forward to discussing it with you. Uh, your book has, you know, just so practical, uh, Vernon, for those who have not had a chance to purchase it. I'd like to mention that this book is loaded with worksheets and templates to use in each of the strategies uh, that you've presented, and we'll have a chance to talk about some of those today. Early in your book, you quote John Foster Dulles, who has said The measure of success is not whether you have a tough problem to deal with, but whether it's the same problem you had last year. How does this quote tie into the reason that you wrote this book?
1: Well, it ties in directly because um, having uh, been a supervisor uh, for over 20 years and looking back at my experience and looking at the experiences of some of my colleagues and other people that I had known, uh, I realized And recognize readily that there's a tendency to treat the symptom, and that's why we find ourselves in this mode of fixing a problem, and um, finding that we still have the same set of behaviors that we had to start out with. And um, I've been guilty of that a number more times than I even cared to admit. (laughs) I think we all have. Uh, yeah, just from the standpoint of expediency, we tend to uh, make an observation about uh, an employee's behavior, uh, draw a conclusion, and then implement a plan of action almost that quickly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And and the reality of it is oftentimes uh, we find ourselves uh, with the same problem again. And that's where I came to the conclusion that in order to really effectively Address performance issues, we needed to get beneath the surface and get to the root cause of the behavior, as opposed to just treating the obvious symptoms. It's kind of like going to the doctor and presenting yourself with a headache, and the doctor says, "Oh yeah, I know exactly uh, what the problem is. You probably you've got a sinus infection. Give you some antibiotics, and you take that for ten days, and then you're still having the headache." Mm-hmm. And, um, that's another example of that. And what I would liken that to is I'd prefer that the doctor would say, Oh, you've got a headache. How long have you had the headache? Um, uh, when did it begin? Is it a sharp pain or is it a dull pain? Is it constant or is it intermittent? Uh, let's do some tests. Let's get an MRI. Let's get a brain scan. Let's maybe do an EKG. Let's get some blood work. Let's get a urinalysis. And all those things help to get to the uh, to the root cause, and then can take a more uh, a direct um, Form of action to correct it, and that's kind of like it is with the manager, and that's really what drove me to uh, to write that this book. Uh, this issue of getting to the root cause.
0: Certainly an important thing to do today, uh, especially in the times that we're in, I think, uh, Vernon. Uh, You know, we we can't afford to make mistakes as we're diagnosing problems. We really need to have the correct information. You also mentioned uh, your belief that all employees have unlimited potential for achievement. And I'm going to play devil's advocate with you a little bit here what would you say to organizations in tough economic times such as these that are planning perhaps to lay off their their C and their D players? Is this, uh, do you feel, ever an appropriate strategy, and if so, when?
1: Well, first off, let me uh, uh, deal with the, the question of if, if this is ever an appropriate strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say there is a time uh, – when that is appropriate, when a layoff of the C&D players is appropriate. However, I tend to view that as a last resort, uh, and the reason is because of my belief that you mentioned earlier that all employees have un- unlimited potential. And it also gets to an, uh, another assumption that I have, and that is that um, the accountability for performance rests with the supervisor or his team leader, not the employees. That's where the ultimate accountability lies. And as such, it's up to the uh, team leader or supervisor to uh, get at the underlying cause or root cause of performance failures. And if you just get a knee-jerk reaction and say, we're going to lay off our C&D players, um, uh, you, you oftentimes find yourself not really dealing with the problem you just kind of pass it off and you really haven't gotten into examining why the performance is not what it could be. Um, Because I just firmly believe that if given the right set of circumstances, uh, people want to do a good job, that's that's just my conclusion. And the conclusion is also supported by the fact that studies show that 80% of employees say they could perform significantly better if they wanted to, 80%, that's a very, very high number, obviously. Yeah. And so um, it's the team leader or supervisor's job to create the right environment in order to bring out the best in that employee. Because, as I said, I do believe that employees want to do a very good job, uh, but oftentimes there are things within the work environment that keeps them from doing that, um, and it's up to the supervisors to get at that. The reality of it is if you lay off your C&D players for uh, economic times notwithstanding, a lot of times what you find yourself doing is going back through the same process all over again. You hire an employee and you never really deal with the environmental factors or the human factors that are preventing the person from performing at a level that they really could perform at. So I'm really fascinated by um, the fact that the overwhelming majority of employees could recognize and and will uh, acknowledge that they can do better. That's where the focus needs to be. And that takes a lot of effort, unlike treating the symptoms. It takes a lot of time to get beneath the obvious and and get at what's really going on. But uh, as an alternative to a layoff, I just think that that's where the focus needs to be. The other practical reason, too, is uh, if you recognize for a moment that people have this potential, and can do better if they cho- chose to, how much more uh, of a contribution could they make to the business if you could tap into that that uh, potential? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you really don't need to be laying off people who could potentially have a huge impact on the viability of the enterprise. And so that's another reason for not uh, just doing a knee-jerk reaction to laying off people.
0: And I couldn't agree with you more. We often hear from managers and supervisors, you know, that they have employees that are deadwood. And we'll say to them, you know, well, were they deadwood when you hired them, or did you kill them somewhere along the yeah, way? Yeah. And and I wanted to circle back to something you said um Uh, Vernon, um, when you were talking about accountability, because when we visited um, to prepare for this uh, conversation, uh, you had shared with me um, how you play and, and, uh, you know, kind of egg supervisors and managers on a little bit when you're working with them, and and you asked them the question about accountability. Would you share some of that with us? Because I thought that was so valuable.
1: When I'm doing a workshop, as I often do, um, I will open with the question has the accountability for the outcome of the team. And I'll draw uh, on an easel um, on a, uh, a line down the middle of a piece of paper, and I'll say, on one side, supervisor, on the other side, employees. And I'll say, okay, there's 100% accountability to be had here in this question of who is ultimately responsible for the outcome. And I'll say to them, in your view, how does that 100% responsibility break down between yourself and your employees? And typically, uh, supervisors will say, well, you know, it's 50-50. I've got 50% responsibility and employees have got, got 50% responsibility. I'll say, really? Somebody else will say, well, maybe I've got 70% and they've got 30. And, and it kind of works that way. Um, but it's very rare uh, that supervisors will say, which is what I think the correct answer is, that I, as the supervisor, am ultimately 100% accountable. Uh, and I'll give them examples of, uh, like the Baltimore Ravens, for example, last year that Brian Billick was the football coach, the team underperformed, and they fired him. I Did they fire the 53 players on the team? Said, no, well, they... They fired the coach. Uh, the Washington Wizards recently went through a coaching change, and so I'll you know just give examples like that, not just from sports but also from business. If a company is not performing well, oftentimes they'll remove the CEO, uh, and that's just the, the way it goes. Somebody ultimately has to be accountable, uh, and by accountable I mean 100% accountable, not partially accountable, and that's a tough a tough thing for for supervisors to accept a lot of times because they they tend to think that there's some kind of shared accountability the employees have to do certain things and the supervisor has to do certain things which I agree that's the way it is but when all is said and done the supervisor is the one that needs to do whatever it needs needs to be done in order to get the performance where it needs to be that's not that's not the employee's responsibility and that gets back to what we talked about before, about mm-hmm. the supervisor getting to the root cause, the supervisor knowing the employees well enough to know which buttons to push because the same uh, tactics don't work for every employee and, and all that stuff. So, But uh, that's that's my take on it. Supervisors yeah. have ultimate, 100% accountability. And if they don't, then you fall into being a victim of the employees. You know, you, know, you hear things like, I've got dead wood, which you mentioned. Mm-hmm. uh you know, we could get really better results if we had better employees. And of course, the bottom line is, um, as the leader of the team, that person is responsible for getting uh, something close to the best out of each employee.
0: Absolutely, I couldn't agree with you more. And that's a, such a valuable way, the way you position that for folks. In, yeah. in in your chapter two in your book, you discuss the common problem of, of employees not how to perform duties, and you walk us through eight key steps for addressing this concern. I was wondering if you could discuss step number three um, with us and uh, share why it's so important, yet so often missed. And perhaps maybe you even have a story that could uh, help us, um, help uh, illustrate this step for us.
1: Yes. um, That step is the supervisor needs to determine Let's say there's a performance deficiency. The supervisor um, needs to determine if the deficiency is due to a lack of training. And
0: again, this goes back to our um, treating the symptom versus the root cause.
1: You can easily assume, and I've been guilty of this, the employee is not performing up to expectations. And you could assume that It's because they don't know how to perform up to expectations, and you send the person to training only to find out that the performance, that the needle uh, on the performance, did not move at all. They're still performing at the same level. So, um, what I decided is that we need to determine before we send people to training if, in fact, it is a training uh, uh, issue that's causing that. And you can do that by asking the employee. Uh, Number one, not assuming that it's a training issue. Uh, Number two, asking yourself if you've ever seen the employee perform uh, the duty at the level that you need to have it performed at. Because the assumption here is if the employee can do it once, they can do it again. And if they can do it again, then obviously it's not a training issue. Mm -hmm. And the final thing, uh, part of that is, if the employee could do this function properly, if their life depended on it. So that really gets to the heart of um, making sure that before you invest the time and effort and money in sending someone to a class or, or to whatever form of training it is to examine that and really determine that yes, it is a specific it is uh, related to uh, a lack of training. And then you can go ahead and do that and, um, and then be assured that you're going to be successful. Mm-hmm. The reason it's so often missed, I think, is because of expediency. Again, going back to making an observation, drawing a conclusion, and, uh, developing a corrective action measure. That's kind of the process that supervisors go to, go through, um, in order with there's a performance deficiency. Observation, develop a corrective action. I'll draw a conclusion, I should say, and develop a corrective action. That's, that's sort of how that goes. And that's why it's often missed, because, you know, they say I'm too busy to get into all that. And the quickest thing to do is just draw a quick conclusion, send the person to training, and then we're back to John Foster Dulles's mm-hmm. quote once again that we have the same problem that we had last year.
0: Mm-hmm. How did we get here again? (laughs) Well, I smiled as I read this because I, it it seemed um, obvious to me that you are also a student of uh, Bob Megger and some of his work in performance analysis and, um, you know, it just makes things so clear um, for a supervisor or manager to be able to really do that analysis and make sure they choose the right solution. In in chapter two, you you have... Let
1: me just just tell you a quick story. Please, uh, please. uh, early on in my career as a supervisor I had a a service had I was supervising a service representative and I had one service rep uh, her name was Ellen and she was making uh, an unacceptable number of order uh, errors when she wrote service orders and so I was eager to correct this. I said, well, Ellen doesn't know how to write service order properly. So I sent her to a two-week service order preparation class only to have Ellen come back and continue to make the same level of errors. And and I concluded then that it wasn't training, so I started to dig further. And it turns out um, Ellen uh, was a very bright woman, had a college degree unlike uh, any of her colleagues, any of her colleagues, really. And... Um, she was basically bored, and she just made careless errors. And no amount of training was going to address that. So what we needed to do was to find uh, another uh, position that challenged Ellen's uh, intellect because that just was never going to work because she just, just wasn't that into that. And so we finally were able to move her to another position, and she went on to just an outstanding career.
0: That's a great, great illustration. Thanks for sharing it. You, you uh, go a little further with um, some of these steps in, in Chapter 2. You uh, talk about step number 7 and step number 8, which I felt were you know, also very important, but I uh, uh, would guess that many organizations also miss these steps. Uh, could you discuss these two steps with us, number 7 and 8, and share um, you know, how organizations are missing out when they're not utilizing these strategies?
1: Well, um... Again, it's, with the time uh, issues and the need to get on with it um, and making the observation, determining that it's a training issue, getting, uh, wanting to get the person into training, thinking that that's going to solve the problem, then you can get on to a more uh, productive uh, level of performance. Uh, and what I found is that if before you send someone to training, uh, you want to meet with the person beforehand. And you want to talk to them about what the current performance level is. And you also want to uh, discuss what the expected performance level is. Let's say the person is performing at 95% accuracy, and you want to have 98% accuracy. That's very specific um, that you can document. And so what I found to be helpful is to actually draw up an agreement with the person as a result of this meeting that documents the current performance, what the expected performance is, Um, explain to the employee as a part of that meeting how the training is designed to help meet those performance goals, Uh, talk to the person a little bit about what the training, uh, what they can expect at the training in terms of the content, in terms of the duration of the training, in terms of the style that will be used. Will it be uh, more lecture? Will it be uh, practical activities and so forth? Also, it's an opportunity to make sure that the employee has any pre-course assignments that they need to have before going. And then finally, and very importantly, identify any obstacles that the employee perceives that he or she will face uh, when they come back to the workplace and trying to implement what. Uh, has been what the training has been. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, it could be that there's um, there's a shortage of computers or a shortage of current software or something. That could be an obstacle that you want to get in place or get uh, clarified so that you can correct that so that um, when the employee comes back, you can begin to have the person apply the things that they learned. So that's that's kind of step seven, meet with the employees and work out those things. And then uh, step eight is to immediately, immediately after the person returns from training, have another meeting with them, uh, and the purpose is being to get feedback on what they thought of the training, did they feel like it was helpful, did they feel like it uh, enabled them to accomplish the things that we had agreed to before the meeting. It's also an opportunity to pro- provide some recognition, Uh, It might uh, be a certificate that the person uh, will receive as a result of having attended this training, in which case you could uh, present that to the person. And most importantly, you want to immediately assign the person a specific duty related to the training that they just completed. Oftentimes, somebody will go to a training class, come back, and they won't use it for nine months, and then... They will have forgotten it, mm-hmm. and then you ask them to do what you uh, ask them to do, and they, it's just lost. So so those are steps seven and eight, I think, are very important uh, in terms of making sure you get the maximum uh, bang for your
0: buck when you're talking about training. Just excellent. I just... Uh... Feel very strongly about those those uh, steps as well, uh, Vernon. Uh, not to be confused with the first problem that we discussed today, which was they don't know how to perform. The next problem I'd like to look at is they do not understand how well they should perform their duties. Um, You start off this chapter by suggesting employees do not um, ever plan to perform poorly, and you've talked about this a little bit already, um, or have that as a goal, and I completely agree with that kind of thinking. Do you think that most supervisors agree with you? Uh, Why or why not? I think uh, my
1: experience has been that most supervisors um, uh, do not agree with that. and one of the things that I I do is um, is I challenge supervisors to examine their assumptions about their employees because, as you pointed out earlier, we'll hear people saying, our supervisors saying, um, I've got dead wood. Employees are lazy. They don't want to do a good job. You can't motivate government workers or that kind of thing. And of course the reality is that employees do want to do a good job and it's up to the supervisors to develop the environment to bring out their best. But I, I, I firmly believe that, uh, as I've said before, that employees do want to do a good job. And I think one of the, one of the reasons uh, that I found and why employees don't uh, perform up to the supervisor's expectations is because, uh, supervisors oftentimes have low expectations of Mm -hmm. employees. So if I'm a supervisor and I really don't expect that you can really do very much, Susan, or I think that you're lazy or not motivated or whatever, then I'm not going to have a very high expectation of you as an employee, and it's going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. I don't expect much from you. I don't get much from you, and I conclude there I was right. Mm -hmm. And so I think uh, one of the keys is to have supervisors change their expectations, which means they have to change their assumptions about employees and go more along with employees really want to do a good job because that's just part of the human drive. Nobody wants to fail and work from that and you'll get a better result.
0: I agree, and, and, and this is a perfect uh, lead into the solution that, that you suggest in Chapter 3, which is really about setting performance goals. And for many years, um, we've used and taught SMART goals, but you introduce in your book, um, you introduce us to SMARTER goals, which I loved, by the way. Um, could you walk us through these and um, tell us a little bit about how we might be able to upgrade from SMART goals to SMARTER goals?
1: Well, everybody, you know, we're all familiar with the SMART: specific, measurable, achievable, mm-hmm. uh, relevant, uh, et cetera. Um, but I added the ER, which is the E is for extra effort. Um, you know, we want to challenge people. And that goes back to the issue of expectations also, because if we expect more, we tend to get more as supervisors. So when we're setting performance standards or performance goals, We don't want to set it so low that it's not challenging. The person can kind of accomplish the goal by just rolling out of bed in the morning. So you want to have them have to put some extra effort into it. You want to have them stretch. And the R uh, is for it should be the goals should be related to the organization's uh, objectives. Because one of the things I also find repeatedly is there's a disconnect between what the organization is trying to accomplish and how the employee sees their role in that. In fact, more often than not, they don't see any connection. They don't see any value in what they do. They just say, well, all I do is answer the telephone. All I do is clean the bathroom. All I do is uh, handle benefits questions. All I do is whatever. And, and it's up to the supervisor, I think, to, to make that con- connection of the dots. Let me give you an example. The Social Security Administration has a mission to promote the economic security of the nation's people through compassionate and vigilant leadership in shaping and managing America's social security system. That's the mission. That's why the Social Security Administration exists. Uh Then the second question that needs to be asked is what are the organization goals? And let's just say the goal is to reduce the time between uh, a person makes an application to when they receive their first uh, disability check from 45 days to 30 days. So that's the organization's goal. And then the third question that needs to be asked is what product or service does this particular employee on my team uh, produce and how does it fit in with that? So if you can connect those three, Mm -hmm. the mission, the organization's goals, and the product or service that the employee is uh, charged with producing, uh, you get a better result every time. And that's what I mean by relating uh, the uh, employee's performance to the organization's goals.
0: Yeah, I would agree. I think... uh Far too few, far too few employees uh, see the alliance between you know their actual task work and and um, you know those broader goals within the organization. In, in chapter number four, um, you get into poor job fit issues, and I think there's you know certainly a lot of these in, in many organizations. And yeah. you provide two great tools to help with this challenge. Can you tell us about these tools and how you would use them?
1: The first tool that I have found to be helpful is what I call a skilled worksheet. And, and I started using this, gosh, many years ago. And what I did was just kind of take a sheet of paper uh, and draw uh, three columns, or create three columns. In the first column, I would write skills required. And I'd just take one of my employees who was not performing up to expectations, for example, and I'd say, what are the skills that are required in this position that this person is in? That would be the first column. The second column I would create was, how critical are those skills that I just listed in column one? And I would rank those. Just This is very not very scientific, but mm-hmm. this, uh, anecdotally I would say, okay, uh, somewhere between zero and ten, um, this skill is, of uh, three, you know. And then the third column, I would say, how much of this skill does this employee in this position um, possess? And, and just kind of go down each, each skill and, and, and do it that way. And, and so where it became really meaningful would be if I had a person that was in a position and oral communication, for example, I had said, that skill is a nine. But this person in the position has the skill level of maybe a two or three. I've obviously got a mismatch there. And so I need to either work to try and bring that person's skill level up or change the skill required, maybe not have that skill, the oral communication be required so much there, or... Consider moving this person to another position because clearly we've got a mismatch there, and that has just served me so well for so many uh, years. And I've had other people use it, and they just love it, and it works so well for them. Um, but when you've got a skill mismatch, you know you're just very likely not to get the performance that you want, mm-hmm. and so you need to take some some measures there. So that's the one um, one tool. Mm-hmm. The other tool that I have found. Uh, To be helpful is to, again, very unscientifically, but to just look at personality types. And if you think about employees that you supervise, uh, you can recognize certain personality types. For example, I call one uh, a technocrat. And so when I'm thinking of of a technocrat, I think of somebody who's uh, driven by the desire to excel somebody who likes to continue to build skills, somebody who likes to be known as an expert. So when I'm thinking of assigning this person job duties, I want to assign them duties that will allow them to use their technical skills because that's very important to them. I also want to assign them duties that allow them to develop new skills, and I perhaps even want to allow them to specialize in a particular skill area. So that, that kind of process I found just to be helpful in terms of assigning people's uh, duties. Mm-hmm. A worksheet where you identify the skill required, determine how critical it is, and assess the person in the position for the amount that they possess, and then the personality type where you take into account that individual's personality and assign duties accordingly. And I mentioned other personality types, the yuppie. This person likes promotion of money. They like to learn skills. Uh, to climb the career ladder. They like to gain increasing authority. But so when assigning job duties to this type of person, allow them to develop a wide range of skills, give them an opportunity to make decisions, provide visibility that could lead to a promotion. You've got the Lone Ranger. Um, this person, is, uh, freedom is a driving force with that person. They don't like a lot of rules. So when assigning them duties, tell them what you want, and then get out of the way allow them to work according to their own rules and it just kind of so on so um, there were eight personality types that I could I could identify that I' I'd kind of observed over the years and sort of that same sort of process what are the key features of that personality type as I've observed and how can I uh, take that into account when assigning them duties
0: are great tools uh, Vernon and thanks for sharing them with us. Um, I just wanted to remind folks uh, that they could engage with Vernon Williams Um, they could engage him as a speaker, a trainer or a coach for their supervisory development needs and certainly order a copy of Why Employees Fail to Meet Performance Expectations and How to Fix the Problem by visiting www.vernonwilliams.net You open chapter number five Vernon with a, a pain a illustration, uh, also a powerful illustration, from the Minnesota Vikings. I was wondering if you'd be willing to just read this little story uh, straight from your book to us and and tell us how it connects to the challenge that you've identified in this chapter.
1: The date was October 25, 1964. The Minnesota Vikings were playing the San Francisco 49ers at Kesar Stadium in San Francisco. Jim Marshall an extremely conscientious player who had never missed a game, was playing defensive end for the Vikings. Early in the game, there was a fumble. Spotting the ball laying on the ground, Jim immediately picked it up. As soon as he did, he became entangled with other players, and he was spun around a couple of times. Finally, he was in the clear, with nothing but green grass in front of him. His arms and legs pumped as he gained speed. Soon, Jim was running as fast as he could. In a very short time, he arrived in the end zone, 66 yards from where he'd picked up the fumbled football. He was elated and was about to celebrate having scored a touchdown. Then it dawned on him. He had run 66 yards in the wrong direction. His goal had been to do a good job, in this case, score a touchdown for his team, Instead, he scored a safety for San Francisco. You know, when I thought about that story, it really touched me. Number one, I liked Jim Marshall and I liked the Vikings. I remember that play, of course. But it also, in a performance management context, reminded me of similarities between Jim's experience and employees' experience in the workplace. Many employees are just like Jim. They show up every day. Jim, as I said, he had an Iron Man record that was just unsurpassed at the time. He had played in like a phenomenal number of games. So they show up every day. Employees do that. Like Jim, employees want to do a good job and help their teams win. And that goes back to my point of employees having potential and wanting to do a good job. Like Jim, they think they're doing a good job, when in fact, they could be going in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. And like Jim, by the time they find out they're going in the wrong direction, it's too late to do anything about it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so that that that's kind of the way it is with employee performance, um, that we have employees who are not performing well and they don't know it. And of course, the solution for that is feedback you know if Jim t- would have heard the crowd or if, if he was playing in San Francisco so the, the fans in San Francisco weren't going to give him any heads up saying hey Jim you're going in the wrong direction <laughs> yeah. but he had been playing at home that probably would have happened or if some of his teammates could have grabbed him or yelled at him or something some kind of signal that would have Jim, hey, you, you're going in the wrong direction. You need to slow down, or you need to turn around, in fact. Uh, but he didn't get that. And so employees in the workplace are oftentimes in that same situation. They, they show up. They think they're doing a good job, and they don't get any feedback, and they just assume that they are, and, uh, and the, the performance continues. And then, of course, at the end-of-the-year performance evaluation is done, and then there's all this friction between the supervisor and who's writing the performance evaluation and the employee who's receiving it. And, of course, the employee's response is, you know, if I was going in the wrong direction,
0: why didn't like you, you tell me, me
1: back in January, well, I had a chance to fix it or June or yeah. whenever it was. How anything to me? And now it's the end of November or early December, and you're telling me that I had some performance failures, mm-hmm. you know, six or eight months ago. So feedback.
0: Feedback. That's, that's
1: the antidote
0: for that. And, and, and just taking that just a little bit further, um, you you offer 18, uh, what I thought were just really excellent guidelines um, for giving feedback in this chapter. I was wondering if you'd just sit, share one or two of those that you feel are most important and tell us why. Okay, gosh,
1: uh, it, was, it was really hard to pick out three <laughs>
0: because
1: they're all very important. <laughs> Well, I will say, uh, I'll, I'll give you four, uh, and the reason I'll give you four is because the first one is to is to recognize that you have two goals when you're a supervisor and you're giving feedback. One, you want to change the employee's behavior, and two, not damage the relationship, uh, because that's what it is. It's a relationship between the supervisor and the employee, and so you want to just kind of keep that in mind as you're giving the feedback. Uh, you don't want to... You don't want to damage the relationship because you're going to still have this person as an employee. So that's that's kind of the the backdrop for that. And then beyond that, uh, one of the three things I would say is that the feedback should be regular. What I used to do was uh, meet with my employees early in January and we'd set performance goals. And then we'd have um, quarterly uh, feedback sessions where we would just go over where they stood and uh, areas in which uh, they were excelling, areas that perhaps there was an opportunity for additional growth or something of that sort. And then beyond that, we'd have, if there was a need, we'd have a conversation even beyond that. So uh, there was ample time uh, for the employees to turn their uh, performance around because we were getting the ongoing feedback. And the other thing, of course, was by setting goals that are measurable, The employees oftentimes knew what their performance was, or they always knew what their performance was, because it wasn't a lot of subjective things like doing a better job and being a team player and uh, being being on step with the program and those kinds of things. It was 98% this, complete this, complete this by end of business, or that kind of thing. It was very clear, very measurable. So regular feedback uh, is very important. And uh, another one is to describe the specific result that you want, and not just stop there, but why it's important that you get that. Because again, employees often think, well, all I do is just answer the telephone. I don't know why that's important. I don't know why it's important that I need to get it on the first ring, or I don't know why I need to complete my benefit uh, questionnaire uh, so uh, uh, by 5 o'clock on a business day or whatever. So describing specific results, what Ninety-eight percent by the close of business, or what have you, and also why it's important that you want that, because that's going to have a, a bearing uh, down the road, and
0: that gets back to what we talked about about the the mission, the organization
1: goals, and why this particular product or service fits into that, or how it fits into that. So people always perform better when they understand not just the what, but the why. And then finally, relate accomplishing what you want as a supervisor to something that the employee wants. And I would use an example like, uh, Susan, you know, here's what I want and here's why. Now, if you deliver that and perform that way, that's going to enable you to develop the skills that are necessary for you to apply for the position as a computer analyst, which is one of the goals that you've stated that you wanted to do. So what I'm doing there is not just talking about what I want which supervisors, Uh, typically do a lot of times, I need you to do this, I need you to do that. And, of course, all of us operate from a notion of what's in it for me. So by explaining how what you want is also going to help the employee get what he or she wants, um, it's very helpful.
0: I think those are some great guidelines. Thanks for sharing them, Vernon. Um, recognition has always seemed to me to be the low-hanging fruit that I think can address so many issues in one clean sweep, yet um, so many team leaders seem to miss this opportunity altogether. And I wondered, um, you know, what your thoughts were about that. Why, why does that happen? And do you feel that organizations may have a culture that either supports or opposes the use of recognition? You know, my
1: experience is that organizations, for the most part, do not put a great deal of emphasis, or do not support that a great deal, and and supervisors tend to get in line with that. Uh, I did a workshop last week uh, with a group of frontline supervisors, and we were talking about this issue of recognition, and um, and as so often is the case, uh, many of them said they didn't. They didn't have any money to to give recognition, and that's oftentimes what I call a cop-out uh, because I went on to point out to them a number of, uh, of uh, ways they could provide recognition that didn't cost any money. And um, but I, I think the organization uh, misses a great opportunity to really drive this point home and hold supervisors uh, accountable for making the recognition because at the core all of us the number one drive or the number one need that people have is the need to feel appreciated and recognition enables them to be appreciated so um you know I talk to them about doing some simple things like mailing a personal thank you note to the employees home getting a senior executive to stop by the office and say thank you um display photos of people who've made outstanding contributions. So um, it's, it's not it's not something that's going to cost a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, it is something that has a huge payoff. And uh, I have supervisors who tell me they don't do a lot of supervision because they don't believe it's important. Well, we know that's not true. They also say they're too busy. Yeah. Uh, it's not my job. I'm here to fix problems. And of course, as I mentioned before, they'll say, we don't have any money in the budget for that. Mm So very important, and I think organizations can do a much better job of holding supervisors' feet to the fire and holding them accountable for doing that.
0: I completely agree. You um, also uh, provide 40 different ideas for recognition. um, And I was wondering if you might be able to um, provide a Reader's Digest edition of a couple of your favorites from this wonderful list.
1: Yeah, uh, and I kind of touched on a couple of those, uh, having an executive say thank you. Just saying thank you, just saying nice job, uh, that's that's so powerful, you know. Uh, and one of my favorites um, is to call an employee into your office just to say thank you. Don't conduct any other business, don't have any other discussion, because I'll guarantee you if 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 you tell one of your employees you want to see him, the first thought they're going to have is, uh-oh, what did I do? Because I never get called into the boss's office unless I've messed up. So if you call them in and just say, you know, I just want to thank you for the way you handled that project last week, and they'll look at you like, okay, and they're waiting for the other shoe to drop, uh, and just say, no, that's all. There's nothing else. Uh, so that's powerful.
0: Yes, it is. You introduce us in Chapter Seven to some barriers in the workplace that impact performance. Can you highlight your best practices for working through workplace barriers to performance? Well, first, off, recognize that there are barriers. Um,
1: the tendency sometimes is to assume that it's a bad employee, and that's why the performance isn't what it ought to be. But oftentimes, there's a there's a legitimate barrier that's preventing the person from from achieving the. Uh, goals that are necessary. I'll tell you a quick story. Um, I I had this uh, manager who had a secretary who was just outstanding, was always on point, always met the requirements and um, her performance began to deteriorate. She was not available at her desk a lot. He would go to look for her and she was not there and he began to just become very disenchanted with her performance. But long story short, it turns out that she was doing, uh, in addition to answering the telephone, following and uh, stuff like that, she was making copies. And sometimes she'd have to go to another floor to make these copies. Well, whereas before she'd been able to go up to the uh, the floor and make the copies, get right back to the desk and be there to greet visitors, answer the phone, and so forth. Well, other people had found out about this copying machine. And so instead of just running up and making the copies, She now had to wait in line, which kept her away from her position. And, again, upon further investigation, that's what was determined to be the cause there. So he bought a simple desktop copier and put it in the work area. She didn't have to go up and make the copies. Her performance got back to where it was. Everybody was happy. Uh, Looking at barriers, uh, there there are three things we need to make sure we do. One, examine the inputs into the group. What work is coming in and what barriers are there? Associated with that, such as what's the source of information. When the information comes in, is it complete? Because oftentimes it means that if it's not complete, then that slows it down. you got to go back and try to uh, get the correct information or the full information. So examine the inputs. That's one thing. And then the second thing is examine the internal work process. Uh, do employees know all the steps to follow? What obstacles do they encounter? And so examining the internal process once the work gets into the team can oftentimes reveal bar- barriers. And then the third piece of that is to examine the outputs. Do the employees understand the finished product they're expected to deliver? Do they know to whom that they are to deliver the finished product? Because oftentimes not knowing who to send this to can slow it down. Do they know when they're expected to de- uh, finish send the finished product? So. Looking at the inputs, the internal work process, and the outputs, or the outflow of the work, can oftentimes reveal that there are bottlenecks or barriers and the workplace that can
0: help. And I think these are so, so important, uh, Vernon, these systems kinds of issues um, that team leaders often miss and mistake for, um, you know, just uh, poor uh, team, lead, team member behavior or a lack of interest. And, uh, you know, really they're related to these work process kinds of issues. Chapter 9, you uh, get into a lack of commitment. And this seems to be a common concern that supervisors express. Um, what can they do to?
1: Solve it. Well, I'll give you one word: involvement. Involvement. Um, what I find, and I certainly have done this many times, is uh, I I make a decision and I announce it, and I expect everybody to get in line and follow that, salute and carry it out. And of course, employees, it's not their solution, so they have no no real stake in seeing that it succeeds. So my, my uh, solution is to involve employees in the decision-making and in problem-solving. You know, just present it and say, well, look, we've got this problem now, so you can't do it in every case. But um, in a lot of cases, where there's time to do this and say, look, here's the problem. You know, we're falling short of our budget expectations, or we're falling short of our customer satisfaction expectations. Um, Let's put together a team to come up with any ideas that you can to help us improve in this area. And now what you get is not only a lot of good ideas, but you also get employees who are readily committed to carrying out those ideas because, after all, it was their ideas to begin with.
0: Um, one final question before we conclude our time to get together today, Vernon. It seems that a lot can go wrong around work expectations, and you discuss getting both penalties and rewards for meeting and not meeting work expectations in your book. Can you walk us through the challenges around expectations and how we can use expectations more effectively?
1: One of the things that happens is there's no penalty for not meeting expectations. You know, it's kind of like if you have a child and you say, I want you to make up your bed, but the child doesn't make up the bed. Or you say, I want you to come home at a certain time, and there's no penalty. So you need to build penalties uh, into the process. And the penalties can include things like closer supervision. You can link pay to performance. You can. Uh, 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 put their individual development plans on hold. If they've got aspirations to move to another position, put that on hold. You can deny them the opportunity to attend a special class. You can promote them to a lower-paying position. Or certainly you can remove them from the payroll. But there has to be some penalty, and everybody needs to understand what that penalty is for failure to meet expectations. And also I found it very helpful when you're setting goals um, as a part of the goal-setting process that you uh, include not just uh, uh, include consequences as a part of the goal-setting process. If you do these things, if you meet these expectations, here's what you can expect to uh, to get. If you do not, then you can expect to get this. So everybody's clear on on what the rewards and what the penalties are. The other thing around expectations, oftentimes employees are rewarded for not meeting expectations. I'll tell you a quick story. Um, as a supervisor, his name was Bob. Bob supervised uh, technicians. They had a statewide area that they covered. The technicians um, were acting like self-employed individuals. They drove their truck home at night. They mm-hmm. would get up in the morning. Instead of going to a central location, they would drive their truck to the work site their orders would be faxed over to them, and they would do their work that way. Mm-hmm. The rule was no overtime, um, but invariably, around 2 to 3 o'clock, one of the technicians would call Bob and say, Bob, I'm tied up on this job. Um, I need to, if I can wrap it up, if you'll authorize me to work uh, a couple hours overtime. Bob would, would allow them to do that, uh, even though it was in violation of the the policy at the time, and pretty soon the word got around, and all of the technicians were doing it, and so they were doubling their salary because they were getting, like, time and a half for overtime, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: so, and and we finally uh, dealt with Bob about that issue, but this was a great example of not only not penalizing someone for not meeting expectations, but actually rewarding them because these guys were making, and gals were making Big money because of the overtime, so they were being rewarded. Well, um, the other thing around penalties is for is penalizing employees for meeting expectations, and this happens all the time. You've got a really gung ho, energetic employee, meets commitments, uh, always great with customers, doesn't cause any discord in the team or whatever, and what do we do? <laughs> We take work from people who aren't performing up to expectations, and we assign them to the person who is meeting expectations. (laughs) And so, in effect, they're being penalized by getting more work. And in many cases, they're all part of this team, all earning the same money, all getting the same benefits, but yet you're asking more of someone else by, by in effect, penalizing them. And so that's not going to last. They're going to realize that, you know, I'm being used here, and they're going to back off, and then they could become the performance issue. Or, as I always tell supervisors, they're going to get promoted, and they're going to move out of the team, and you're not going to have them anyway. So
0: yes.
1: the, the prudent thing to do is to get all of your employees performing at that level instead of penalizing the people who are performing at that
0: level. Just so- Great, solid, and practical advice today, Vernon. And uh, your book is just a, a great field field guide for supervisors and team leaders. Uh, I think offering lots of common sense kinds of approaches approaches to performance problems that um, that everyone faces. And I'd like to thank you for sharing your work with us today and for your contribution to the performance management field. Um, it's been really Thanks it's, for having me. I appreciate it. it's really been great uh, to spend this time with you today and, and tour your book together. And uh, I hope I hope folks have gotten lots of value out of it. And I would like to encourage um, everyone once again uh, to get a copy of, of Vernon's really uh, wonderful field guide, Why Employees Fail to Meet Performance Expectations and How to Fix the Problem. They can visit his website, which is just vernonwilliams.net. VernonWilliams.net In 2009, um, our first guest of the year will be Peter Block who will be discussing his new book which is simply called Community and I wanted to remind folks that uh, we have um, put up a new discussion group on LinkedIn hoping everyone is on LinkedIn Uh, we have a bookends discussion group on LinkedIn Uh, you do not need an invitation to join this uh, discussion group. Um, uh, it's op- an open group and you can simply go to LinkedIn and uh, go to groups and join the bookends discussion group. Uh, and what we'll be doing there is we will be discussing now for the next uh, several weeks, we'll be discussing for, uh, discussing Vernon's book, uh, continuing the discussion there and, um, and uh, we'll, we'll um, then transition in January to the book on community. So we'd invite you to participate in that discussion with us, uh, and this is a good place to um, to, to continue the dialogue. And um, if you um, are are uh, wondering how to be in the know about future Bookends events, you can go to TeamApproach.com and sign up for our notifications under the Bookends button on our website today. Uh, this is a place where you'll also find archive recordings from all of our previous bookends sessions. So once again, we want to thank uh, you, Vernon, for your, your time and um, your talent today. Thanks for sharing with us. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.